0: welcome to arts express this is prairie miller and on the show
1: we were talking a lot how to deal with these final minutes and today it doesn't matter where you live or how much money you have we are all about to face the same fate at the same moment At 4:44 a.m. tomorrow morning,
2: there will be no survivors. The world will end. You
3: think they're right? I
2: know they're right. What if they're
3: wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the streets look like any normal holiday. Pretty calm, at least for now.
2: Oh, oh! No! Leave that man alone! I'm gonna
3: smoke my cigarette, and I'm gonna die. We're gonna die, guys. We're already dead. Get on your knees and pray. On your knees and pray on the last day. What is wrong
2: with you? The end
1: of the world,
0: the end of the dream. I want to see it. were scenes from Abel Ferrara's Last Day on Earth, an apocalyptic two thousand one drama in which Ferrara, no stranger to the provocative and unconventional on screen, ponders a potential end of the planet from deadly cosmic radiation, as Willem Dafoe, an actor gracing many Ferrara films and other characters, passed the time immersing themselves in art, sex, and and existential contemplation, anticipating the end of everything. And the veteran director, best known for Bad Lieutenant, Kings of New York, and Pasolini, is our guest this week as he flew in from Rome to attend the retrospective of his work at the Cinema Village in New York City, an independent theater just opening again with the retrospective and with the subsiding of the pandemic. Ferrara also has a preview of his next movie, which will premiere at the Locarno Film Festival later this summer, Zeros and Ones, with Ethan Hawke, described as, quote, an unknown enemy threatening the entire world. Here's Abel Ferrara, sort of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, trying three different phones calling into the show before settling on one of them.
2: Yeah, I uh, agree.
0: Okay. Now, in connection with your Cinema Village retrospective, the theater owner, at right. Nico, says, my competitor is a billionaire up the street and I'm still here. Right. What is your reaction right. to his statement and your retrospective there as someone who has existed in both those worlds, yourself, independent film, and Hollywood? Yeah. You
2: know, New York's a big city of 50 million people who the street, <laughs> you know? Yeah, hey, Nick, we're about to find this place you got, you know. <laughs> He's doing all right where he is, you yeah. <laughs> know.
0: And what, what was your decision all about to present and participate in a retrospective of your film work, along with a tribute to the Cinema Village and its post-pandemic reopening?
2: Yeah, I think it's, you just said it, you know. I mean, the theater theater's opening. I'm back in New York. Our film is opening. Siberia, you know, it, it's just, the key film here is Siberia, which is a film we did and is gonna be really- it was released a week ago you know mm-hmm. um in the United States right it's played um you know we we were in Berlin right before right at the right at the moment the pandemic hit, but it actually played it was like the last festival we attended so you know Siberia's opening the movie theater's opening I'm a good friend of Nicks you know. We're not just showing my movies, you know, we're showing the movies of the guys that I work with. We're showing movies I used to go to see when I, you know, lived downtown and worked downtown. And, um, you know, some of the new movies that people haven't gotten a chance to see yet. So I thought it was a good time now that, you know, people coming back into the theaters and just, you know, happy to be alive, happy the theaters are opening, happy we got these movies, you know, looks like a celebration of everything.
0: And which one of your other many films did you choose to be part of this retrospective? And what went into those particular choices?
2: Well, Miss 45 and Drill the Killer both played there. You know, so that's kind of, you know, nostalgic for us. Or, you know, it worked there with, you know, the other films we, you know, we chose the El Topo, Desperate Living, these are films, you know, I remember seeing in that theater. Mm -hmm. Right? And then... um, the newer ones Tommaso and then um what are we doing We the show Tommaso or 44 I think might have played there and then you know um the projectionist is a documentary we did about Nick so you know it's a natural
0: and how would you say the characters in your films are in any way autobiographical or not or as was once said of your characters quote deeply flawed individuals trying to survive in a bleak world.
2: Well, take the bleak out. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a pretty good quote. You know, know. I mean, uh, how would I grab, you know, how much is a film about the director? I would say it it better be plenty, you know, (laughs) if you're paying attention, you know, to your gig Um, about the bleak world. You know, I mean, you know, the pandemic was tough. It was tough for everybody. But, you know, it's a, in every situation, it's, you still got to live it. You know, you still got to, you know, there's no guarantee that we were going to go through, you know, some wonderful period, to, you know, from beginning to end of our lives, you know. Well, there's
0: not, even a, guaran- this is not even
2: a guarantee now. It could come back. Hey, <laughs> come back. It's still out there. More people dying now than ever, you know. Yeah. say they, They're not dying across the street, but they're still dying. Yeah, this is like the wake-up call. You know, you want to play with um, weapons of mass destruction. You want to play with biological warfare. You know, you, know, you want to you no responsibility on the, uh, the environment. So it's karma. Yeah.
0: And what about the moment in time connected to your creative origins and energy? How would you say that has defined your work when you said, quote, I grew up in the 60s, which was a creative time, so it wasn't that big a stretch to go from a baseball bat to a guitar to a film camera. <laughs>
2: did I say that? Yeah, you did. Um, you know, I mean, music was our big inspiration. And that period was, you know, 65, so I guess 66 was like, you know, the great... Because it also was part of the culture, you know, it wasn't like things you had to seek out. You know, Sonny Boy Williamson, Robert Johnson, you had to seek out, you know, Dylan, Stones, Janis Joplin, Aretha, they were all on the radio. You know, they were, you know, it was part of your, um, you know, your life. Um, You know, I came from Peekskill, which is like an hour away from here. You know, I came from, 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 you know, a strong family, a strong uh, educational system that, you know, supported me, you know, supported the students, supported the kids, you know, and um, it was, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, that was it, you know, and movies were great too, you know, And just the influx of foreign movies, you know, you still had the Hollywood thing rolling and then all of a sudden we started seeing movies from around the world and, you
0: know, it was
2: a lot too, um, you know, it was good
0: times. Now you've been an actor as well, so what led you to want to play? Mm, what really led you to want to play Bukowski in My Big Assed
2: Mother? Five thousand bucks for <laughs> like an hour's work, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, you know, I would. I'm not. I'm not an actor. You know, I did it. I did it. Really killed because I had to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, yeah, and it was casted. So um, I did it because you know back in the day because I had to do it. It was going to be. Who knew how long we were going to shoot for? You know, we would shoot on weekends when we could pull the money together. So, I'm thinking I better, you know, have somebody I could count on who's going to show up. There wasn't no five thousand dollars an hour to pay that. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, I did that, but I'm not. I leave the acting to the to the experts.
0: And what can you say about your next film, Zeros and Ones, starring Ethan Hawke, and described as an unknown enemy threatening the entire world?
2: Well, that's kind of... Uh, uh, LA. <laughs> <laughs> the LA publicist, get, guys getting creative there, but um, <laughs> it's a parable of a lockdown. It's about a siege in, in a city. It's It's kind of a film that talks to other films, especially the kind of spy movie, war movie type of thing. We shot it during the pandemic in a lockdown room, so it's interesting. Ethan Hawke plays an American soldier, so it's about soldiers. It's kind of a, a genre, um, espionage, kind of Casablanca-esque, you know, but war, you know, I mean, they're shooting and blowing up bitten guys in uniform, people in, women in uniforms, and, and you know, home too.
0: And where was it filmed? Rome. Oh, okay. And
2: is Cause there... I a... live in Rome. I live in Rome. Yeah. I've been living in Rome for the like last years.
0: Yeah. And is there a projected opening date for that one?
2: It was in Locarno, uh, the Locarno Film Festival, oh. August 12th. So, you know, everybody's invited. <laughs> if you get your ass there, I'll get you in the theater. <laughs> <them>. Okay. <laughs>
0: And is anything else you're working on now or contemplating? Yeah,
2: I'm thinking about it. You know, i got a few things I'm thinking about. And... I, don't want, I don't want to jinx them.
0: Oh, I'm okay. No, that's what I usually But i got to
2: stop thinking and start shooting. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's time to stop thinking and start doing it. You know?
0: <laughs> and when Abel Ferrara looks in the mirror, what does he see?
2: I'm still in my 60s until next month. That's what I see. Uh. Yeah. I still see an image I still see a reflection so that's a good sign
0: and any last word to share with our listeners about your retrospective
2: come on down man here's the deal it's five bucks Nick is letting everybody in Tuesday night it's going to be for free so there's no excuse get to see the projectionist that's for free we're going to play music we're going to be playing music in the street we're going to be playing music in the theater we're going to, you know, the tickets are five bucks. Five bucks, you can stay all day, actually. You can watch all the movies for five bucks. It's just a matter of getting out of the house, getting downtown. I know it's July 4th, but if you, you know, you can't afford $50,000 a week to go to uh, the Hamptons, come to Nick's Theater on 12th Street right off of Fifth Avenue, um, you know, University of Fifth. And, um, you know, bring five bucks. If you ain't got five bucks, we'll figure where to get you in. Okay. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, thank you so no much. No excuse,
2: guys. See good. Okay. Thank you very much, Prairie. Okay, right?
0: and thank you, I Abel Ferrara, it. for calling into our show.
2: Okay. Okay. Ciao. Bye. Come down. Come all down. All right. Bye. Down. Okay. Love you.
0: And that was Abel Ferrara talking about well, many unconventional things. You're listening to Arts Express, and coming up next on the show row on the global literary beat, delving into the six-pointed star, the prison memoir written by Manuel Tiago, a Portuguese communist political prisoner turned novelist and revered government leader following the end of the fascist Salazar dictatorship in Portugal, and with the novel described as a cry against the dictatorship, and with connections to Bogart and High Sierra, Burt Lancaster in Brute Force, Mumia and Julian Assange.
3: This is Bro on the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, people in prison, they're going to want to get out. There are many calls today for abolishing the police or, in actuality, establishing a downsized police force and allowing social workers to respond to calls for help, not with a badge and a gun, but with an understanding of the problems that plague troubled and impoverished communities. The same can be said for prisons, where, especially in the U.S., with the largest incarcerated population in the world, wide-scale reform is needed. This social fact is driven home by the recent publication of the Portuguese author Manuel Tiago's fictionalized version of his own prison experience, The Six-Pointed Star, in a first translation into English by Eric A. Gordon. This is the nickname given to Lisbon's fortress-like carceral building, with a surveillance center and cells radiating out from it. During the Salazar dictatorship, which ran parallel to Franco's rule in Spain, the fortress housed prisoners guilty of crimes large and small. As the book relates, some were violently antisocial, while others were a cry against a dictatorship's inequality. Alongside these were, of course, those most dangerous of inmates, those imprisoned, as are Mumia Abu Jamal and others in the U.S., for their political ideals. And this is not to mention two other prominent global political prisoners whose incarceration under harsh conditions is being used to push them slowly and quietly toward death. WikiLeaks' Julian Assange and Hotel Rwanda's Paul Rusebagina, a cancer survivor kidnapped and detained in a Rwandan prison. The layout of the prison, with its columns radiating out from a central point, seems modeled after Jeremy Bentham's panopticon, a structure that was able to survey its inhabitants at all times. Michel Foucault then took this layout as the model for modern surveillance outside jailhouse walls, which has, through the digital universe, further extended this perpetual prison in which we are all being watched, monitored, and disciplined. Tiago, the pen name for the political activist Alvero Gunal, stresses the arbitrary nature of those locked in this system as the dictatorship reached its apogee in the 1950s. The author is struck and getting to know the inmates, by the fact that the prison is filled with killers who are neither worse nor better than ones who have never killed and never would, adding, in terms of the unfairness of the system, that many who committed crimes could well have spent their whole lives without doing them. This is a breathtaking novel of heartbreaking vignettes, aided by Gordon's translation, which respects the time frame but updates the lingo at moments where this is crucial to an understanding by a contemporary audience. The author suggests a strong contrast in the motives and circumstances of those locked up. Augusto retaliates when a big landowner robbed his family, seduced his sister, and then threw them off their land. In anger at this injustice, he plugs the landowner at point-blank range with a shotgun And a crime for which the prisoners forgive him. Garino, meanwhile, stole food distributed it to his fellow villagers and for this was locked up for 12 years. These crimes, the product of a ruthlessly uneven society, are differentiated from, for example, the doctor who drugged his patients and then raped them. Behind bars, he treats the other prisoners disdainfully, as if he should not have been among them. The subject of prison labor in the South in the U.S., practiced in a prison system after Reconstruction, overwhelmingly filled with black prisoners and a substitute for slavery, Is described in the novel as a scam. The prisoners earn a pittance for the most taxing work while then having to use two thirds of their earnings to pay the cost of their cells, their food, and not just their clothes, but the washing of them as well. A liberal warden begins his stint at the prison enacting reforms, including the prisoners finally being allowed to eat together instead of their only collective experience being one hour in the yard. One prisoner dryly remarks this won't last long. And indeed, it doesn't, as after a slight provocation, the reforms are withdrawn. Tiago or Gunal's own experience is reflected in the novel in the character of a political prisoner, locked and solitary, whom the other prisoners take pity on, attempting to smuggle soap to his cell as a way of acknowledging his presence. Gunal was elected head of the Communist Youth Brigade in the 30s, where his adventures included a visit to Moscow and to arrest. He was thrown into the Lisbon prison in 1949 and spent the first eight of his 11 years there in solitary. In 1960, after being transferred to a prison with less security, he escaped and wrote out the dictatorship living in Moscow and Paris. In 75, after the fall of Salazar the year before, he was elected to the Constituent Assembly while also carving out a career as a novelist, writer of short stories, artist and translator, notably of King Lear. His funeral in 2005 was attended by a half-million Portuguese. Brabs Gunal's most famous novel was A Casa de Ulelia, Ulelia's House, on a Spanish Civil War theme, and his works were turned into Portuguese films and television series. The Six-Pointed Star is also a highly cinematic work, recalling the Hollywood crime films of the 1940s. The story of abandon in the hills, which the prisoners follow and who is eventually gunned down by the police, is eerily similar to Bogart's doomed escape, Khan, who falls in love with a blind woman in High Sierra. The novel's description of one prisoner's body exiting the prison, wrapped in a top coat of planks, recalls a moment in I Was a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, where one of the inmates, upon his release, rides out from the prison gang institution on top of a coffin of a dead inmate. The doctor, who assists the prisoners as best he can but is replaced by an incompetent one whose mantra, no matter the illness, is the do-nothing, this will pass, recalls both the kindly doctor and the hardened replacement regime in the greatest of all prison films, Brute Force. There are prisoners who hang themselves after having all of their delusions broken, a stirring moment in the film which Kunal describes in the novel others wither away, such as the fate of number 402, who made it over the walls, but then collapsed in an injury that precipitated his slow decline. 402 describes the injustice of a system that has, like our own, foregone rehabilitation, and is simply about a punitive exploitation. I'm here for the rest of my life, just on account of one second in my life. The desperation of these wasted lives, who nevertheless Make of this inhuman situation a kind of lively humanity, perhaps is best summed up by the last line of brute force. The kindly doctor, in a postmortem for prisoners mowed down in an escape attempt, says there is one thing that unites all of those in this situation. Whoever they are, they're going to want to get out. This is Bro on the global literary beat, Breaking Glass.
0: And stay tuned for Dennis Bro reporting on location soon. From the Cannes Film Festival. And next up on
4: the show, there were these helicopters flying over the ridge, spraying something. And they didn't even see the kids. That night, they were all really sick. We called the Forest Service and they said, oh no, it's perfectly safe. It was a mixture of 2,4 D and 2,4,5 T. Agent Orange and it's still going on.
3: This stuff is nasty stuff. <laughs> My throat is burning.
4: Tumors, miscarriages, birth defects that was banned in Vietnam and nobody realized that the same chemicals were being used here.
3: It was the most destructive instance of chemical warfare in modern history.
1: Je suis né pendant la guerre, je vis dans la guerre et maintenant aussi on est
3: The powers that be went to great lengths to deny any effect from Agent Orange.
2: They knew that it contained a poison, and they knew the effects
5: could be devastating.
3: They sprayed people!
5: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Agent Orange has been called the most destructive instance of chemical warfare in modern history. And sad to say, the U.S. government has been instrumental in the awful deaths caused by Agent Orange, both in Vietnam and the United States. A powerful new documentary, The People vs. Agent Orange, depicts the horrific story, but also the courageous action by two extraordinary women, Tran Tho Nha and Carol Van Strum, who fought and sacrificed so much to bring the guilty parties responsible to account. I'm very happy today to be speaking with the directors and producers of the film, Alan Adelson and Kate Taverna. And I'm also very honored to say we have one of those extraordinary women of the film today with us, Carol Van Strom. Hi there. Hi, Hi there. Hi, Jack. Hi. Alan, let's start with you. Uh, How did the world first hear of Agent Orange, and how could this deadly chemical become the major focus of two women living thousands of miles from each other?
1: That's a great question, Jack. The catastrophe began rather silently, at least for Americans whose war effort in Vietnam was so deeply shrouded in secrecy, and the means by which they were fighting this so-called communist insurgency, in which people like Trantonia in our film were coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to try to liberate South Vietnam from the puppet government that the United States was supporting, it was only when the Vietnamese began to make known that deformities were occurring in their births, a really heroic obstetrician named Dr. Phuong, whose own children were deformed, showed Mm -hmm. the deformed fetuses that were being aborted there, and progressively photographs and video began to come out to caution the world that something very, very unprecedented and disturbing was going on in Vietnam associated with the aerial spraying of herbicides.
5: And how did you get involved in this film? A uh,
1: young actress who had uh, volunteered at an orphanage in Saigon put photographs of the deformed children in my face and said, you have to do something about this. No one knows what's going mm. on over there. And the oh, investigative journalist in me began to think if these kids were the result of conscious decisions made at the corporate level. And if the chemical companies knowingly put out the poison for profit only with no regard to human welfare, then making a film about Agent Orange even this late, half a century later, would be a cautionary tale that could help humanity.
5: Well, I'm so glad those pictures were brought to your attention and I can hear from your voice how impactful they were. And, and this film, I think, is sort of like having those pictures put in front of us, a wider audience, and, you know, is so impactful. It's hard for us to turn our heads. Carol, I'd like to bring you in here. Your side of the story takes place with you living in Oregon. And why, Carol, did they use Agent Orange near where you lived?
4: They experimented with the same chemicals here, oh, in the late 40s, 50s, somewhere in there, but that never became an issue until the same chemicals were banned in in, um, Vietnam. The military could no longer use them, and that was thanks largely to some Magnificent articles by Thomas Whiteside in The New Yorker. They built whole new factories to make this stuff for the military. And what are they going to do with it? They immediately turned to promoting it for use in forestry, supposedly to kill trees that were not commercial, and also on rights of way, like along roads and railways And in rice fields and rangelands in the United States. So it was promoted incredibly heavily. And that's how (laughs) the war came home to us.
5: Well, for for us uh, city dwellers, what is clear-cutting and what what does it involve exactly?
4: It's basically strip mining. They kill everything. The, The idea is warped as it is, the idea is they take everything away and spray the hell out of it and then they grow only their commercially valuable Douglas fir and they use oh. herbicides very heavily to create that.
5: And and what happens to the herbicides when they do do the clear cutting and they spread it all over and they spray them from helicopters, right?
4: Uh, it goes everywhere and it, of course everything ends up in the water and the water goes downhill, and so do the herbicides, and they end up in the water, they end up in the silt, they end up in the fish. When they finally looked, they were finding the dioxin contaminant of the Agent Orange in the deer, in the elk, in the people's drinking water supplies. It was everywhere.
5: And how did you become aware of the Agent Orange? What, what were the effects?
4: Well, um, we had more immediate effects, which uh, initially my children got sprayed. We had four children, and they were down by the river, which runs through our place, and the road runs alongside the river. And a tank truck came along with two guys on it with high-pressure hoses spraying, and it was going right into the river, and of course, it went all over my kids and the dog, and... Um, by that night, they were so sick, uh, we kind of panicked and called the, um, said, you know, what was in that tank? It made everybody sick. And they said, oh, it's totally harmless. It's just a mixture of 2,4 D and 2,4,5 T. It only kills plants. It couldn't have hurt the kids. And much as we wanted to believe them, when we went down to the river the next day, we found dead ducklings floating along the edge. We found dead fish, oh dead God. crawdads. We found dead, a dead hermit thrush sitting on her nest. It was it was so appalling to realize that something awful had come into our lives that we didn't ask for.
5: But you fought back.
4: Because of, well, it was just a few weeks later, the Forest Service helicopters showed up spraying the entire ridge which surrounds our place, and of course, that drifted uh, down. It killed our garden, and the dog died uh, with big oozing sores on him. And um, oh my gosh, that was when. Uh, uh, shortly after that, all the ducklings that hatched on our place—they had no wings or little stumpy wings. They had feet on backwards, crossed beaks. Oh my um, gosh, it was. It was. Very scary because you don't know what's how far this went, you know. And uh, it was shortly after that that a, a letter of a article appeared in the local paper by an OSU, yeah. Oregon State University professor named Michael Newton. He's in the film, by the way. This was the wonderful new tool of forestry and just p- promoting the use of this stuff on, in the forests, and it was going to improve our timber production. And it was this glowing, wonderful article. And I kind of saw red and we wrote a response to it. And we got all of a sudden and people were calling and coming by and saying the same thing happened to us. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what they were spraying. And that was how CATS was formed. That was Citizens Against Toxic Sprays. We tried to we were so naive. We told the Forest Service. We thought if we just tell them what's going on, they'll stop doing it, right? Well, of course uh-huh, they didn't uh-huh. believe. It. They didn't believe any of it. They said, "Oh no, it's all safe. Um, it's approved by EPA," uh, and they wouldn't budge an inch. And we ended up finding an amazing lawyer named Bruce Anderson from Eugene who took the case, knowing that. He would never, ever get paid for the amount of work he put into it,
5: much as we yeah. tried. The companies didn't take it lying down, though. They intimidated a lot of people, too, didn't they?
4: And the propaganda mm-hmm. was incredible, saying that, you know, well, we th- these, these are just a bunch of hippies out in the woods, and all their health effects mm-hmm. are caused by smoking too much marijuana, and they're just trying to pr- protect their illegal crops of marijuana from spraying uh-huh. so it was yeah uh, there was a lot of a lot of propaganda there were, we were followed our phones were tapped it was nuts
5: there's one scene in the film where people in Oregon begin to take uh, more militant actions in self defense didn't they <laughs> You have there's a scene where they're shooting at the helicopter sprayers and burned a helicopter
4: well right You've got to realize, though, we had gone to every legal means possible to stop them. And we got no, the only person that listened to us in all that time was a county commissioner named Jack Postal. And he actually put on goggles and went swimming in the Uh river and looked at what was dead on the bottom and said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-oh, this is bad. Yeah, they burned a spray helicopter that was parked in the woods here and... I can't say I blame them.
5: Yeah, no, no. In, in your own way, you are you were fighting a little <laughs> guerrilla war. Um, and I guess that connects us with the Vietnam side of the story. So uh, cut to Vietnam. And Kate and Alan, how did you decide about the structure of that film? Because it's so brilliantly <laughs> done, the way that you consciously decided to cut Back and forth between the Vietnam side story and the American side story between these two extraordinary women, one of which we have here today. Did you always know it was going to be the intertwining of the two stories of well, Trantonia film, and Carol? Um,
6: the film. I was editing the film, and uh, it, the, the editing process went on for some time because it took many. It took a long time to raise funds for the film, so I cut a lot of samplers. So we found Madame Tron first, who mm-hmm. was setting up her lawsuit, and then we found um, uh, Admiral Zumwalt, who also used the, the, uh, the chemical as head of the Navy in Vietnam and uh, lost his son after the war as a result of being sprayed by it. Um, and then we found mm. Carol, and eventually we found... After many pitch sessions, we realized we needed to bring this to the present, and we found Daryl Ivey, the man who is on the crew, who you see as a sort of interstitial, the very first Hmm. scene in the film, and he's a sort of interstitial throughout the film.
5: Take us back for a moment to Trantonia. She has an extraordinary background. Can you fill it it Um, in a bit?
6: She does have an extraordinary background and we didn't include all of it in the film, but um, just to show her uh, coming from a family of resistors, uh, her her grandmother, her mother, her sister, all of them having been in prison during many uh, colonial times, fighting the French and fighting the Americans. But um, she also had children and was sprayed in the woods. And so she became very conscious of what the damage was when she lost her child and realized it was from Agent Orange. And she started um, raising money for building homes and care centers for the kids who were getting sprayed. Three or four generations of kids have been born with uh, all these anomalies from being affected by dioxin in the groundwater, in the fish
5: and the the film really doesn't play coy as many films seem to do with the brutality and naked aggression of America's policy in Vietnam. And you know every norm of international law was violated. And I'm I'm so very grateful for you that you didn't pull any punches. It's, you have some extraordinary footage there. I mean, oh, it's such a it's such an awful story. You 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 have the Vietnamese women in the forest lighting candles for all those who sacrificed. For yeah, us that's and a beautiful
6: them. scene. That's, that's on the, the island. Um, that's the prison island of Con Dao in the south of uh, Vietnam, where a lot of those people were put into prison and they were buried there.
5: Oh uh, my yeah. gosh. Why did Kennedy and uh, Diem, the dictator of South Vietnam, want to spray the crops in Vietnam in the first place? Mm-hmm. Kennedy
1: liked the idea, as David Zeller says in our film, of using technical solutions, American ingenuity, uh, to fight back against this insurgency as David Zeiler says, not just big, scary bombs, but now a chemical defoliant that could expose the enemy that they couldn't find otherwise and help them kill the enemy. Not surprisingly, it backfired by destroying the treetops, the jungle canopy they enabled light to reach the forest floor. And sure enough, oh. huge grasses, what they now call American grass in Vietnam, grew up and bamboo. Uh, and that gave far better cover to the Viet Cong <laughs> than the high treetops did Nevertheless, they persisted with the spraying for 10 years.
4: It was also very, very, the, another goal was to kill their crops so they could starve them. So that it was used to destroy what was their food supply.
5: And the government knew that there would be risk to humans if production was ramped up. The chemical companies surely did not want the
1: government or military to be wise to the dioxin component that was already wreaking havoc in reproduction in Vietnam and would soon begin to wreak havoc in the offspring of the American military as well. Dow actually called a unique meeting of toxicologists. These are representatives from all of their competitors. And at that meeting, they cautioned one another to be very careful. As we quote in the film, it could be very embarrassing, they say, if this comes out. Uh, If you reference Carol's book, A Bitter Fog is the title. That book has been really a clarion call to activism, environmental activism. And so that we can, as Carol says in the film, protect ourselves from being poisoned we she says we have the right to protect ourselves from being poisoned but in fact that right is being interceded upon now by the courts which preempt locally adopted laws communities trying to protect themselves but having the corporate influence come to bear at the state level and those state laws preempt the local or community laws. Only last week, a court in Lincoln County, Oregon, where Carol lives, overturned a community ban on the aerial spraying of herbicides. That's the bad news, but I could offer up one small Encouraging factor as well. The legislature in the mm-hmm. state of Maine adopted a statewide ban against the er- aerial spraying of herbicides. I surely hope that is not overturned as well, but that would be the first state in the nation to ban the aerial spraying of herbicides, which every state should do.
5: Uh-huh. I want to go back just a bit to the uh, non-responsiveness of the courts. I'd like you to talk about how the two stories of the two women converge in the courtrooms and how that comes about.
1: It certainly is a crossover. For sure, Trantonia built a case against what were originally 26 American chemical companies, all of them manufacturers of Agent Orange, and she fought that case for seven years. Carol has been involved in many, many cases. Carol, you, you could say the Incredible archive that she built, um, which um, came to be dubbed as the Poison Papers, and then on a website uh, run by Columbia University called Toxic Docs, she collected Mm -hmm. so much documentation that the weight of it broke through the floor of her barn. You can see (laughs) that over and over again, these legal judicial initiatives have been undertaken with great courage and great conviction only to have the courts actually refuse to address the issues of corporate malfeasance which uh, are posed by the cases and instead to worm out of ruling on those horrendous actions by ducking it behind various technicalities. The court in France, only a couple of months ago, after seven years of deliberation, announced that it was not qualified to rule on such a case and that it could not comment on acts of war by other nations.
5: And that French case was was brought in and initiated and uh, shepherded by Trantonia, and using a lot of the documentation that Carol had put together. I, I want to ask you, Alan and Kate. This is a tough question to ask, but I, I I I feel I need to ask this. You don't shy away at all from showing the physical effects of the Agent Orange the deformed Vietnamese children did you ever discuss amongst yourselves as filmmakers how much an audience can face yes, that
6: was the subject that we had with our executive producers all along even when we were pitching the film to mm. um in pitch markets uh how much how much could we show and I didn't really want to make a kind of porn out of those pictures I wanted to be respectful and we were all very judicious right. about it even the sound mixer the composer everybody working on the scene all along we wanted to be able to show these kids as the fourth generation of kids being born but also to be you know respectful that you know they didn't have words to say on camera
1: they're helpless to have abjured putting the images of them into the film would have deprived them of perhaps the only purpose their existence may have, and that is as silent witnesses to the enormous destruction these chemicals wreak on the human genome. The French prime mover of Madame Tron's case. Um, says it was an attack on the human genome. And as upsetting as the fleeting moments uh, we include in the film of showing them are, it enables an audience to know indelibly what evil has been wrought and what dangers must be prevented in the future.
5: Well, I think you were very respectful, and I also think you made the absolute right choice about it. It has to be faced. I mean, you you want to turn your head, but we've been turning our heads for so long. How do we deal with the awful fact that our own government is guilty of such terrible war crimes?
4: Mm. That's a really hard one, because where do we go? Yeah. Is there a better government anywhere else? As far as I'm concerned, the whole problem comes down to money. And when you have a government, when you have people making the laws who are either in the enthrall to the, the companies, the corporations that make money from their policies, and when you have those companies actually writing the laws, we've got a real problem. And I think That's what has to be addressed. It isn't just feeling guilty for what's been done in the past. We have to make sure Mm -hmm. it doesn't Mm -hmm. happen again and again and again.
1: It goes to that fundamental evil in our political and economic structure here in the United States and perhaps in Mm -hmm. uh, virtually all capitalist countries, which has to do with the influence of money. And in the United States, the influence of corporate lobbying and the support that the corporations give to legislators who will vote the way they want has to be fought and fettered. Carol
6: has a great line in the film about corporations having human rights carol
4: that was a that was a direct quote from jerry spence he says giving human rights to corporations is like giving an ant and a bulldozer equal rights to run over each other what they're doing is murder it's premeditated murder they know
5: Go- going forward is there a uh, judicial or legislative path that can be followed or that is being followed well, that's a good down.
1: question jack the, um barbara lee uh, representative uh in congress from uh the state of california i believe for many years has been pushing legislation that would at least make reparations with the vietnamese people and try to help the victims there
4: well, and there's an international well, movement now to get the ecocide declared an international crime. Wherever enforced, it could make some changes, we hope. Of course, whether the United States would ever sign on to anything like that is another question. Mm.
5: As we wrap up, are there any last words you'd like to add? Anything you feel like you? want to mention that you may have missed
1: i just want to pose carol as a a model for anyone who anyone who sees that film and comes away furious and confused and worried and threatened and wondering what they can do follow carol's model bring carol into your life keep her there and emulate her just as much as you can
6: and if you want to take any kind of action, to go to our website, www.thepeopleversusagentorange.com, and the resource page lists all the organizations that people can get involved with, can contribute to, for all kinds of rights, of community rights, for victims' rights, for the people in Vietnam. It's a myriad of things in there.
1: Check out CELDF, Community Environmental
6: Legal Legal
1: Defense Defense Fund. Fund. They are pushing cases in Florida um, where the manatee are being poisoned by herbicides, all the fracking controversy, of course, uh, in the Pacific Northwest and in the Midwest, all the aerial spraying of herbicides. Um, There's much that is going on that can be supported. I
4: would add one more thing. Yes, please, Carol. Uh, Stop tolerating lies, period.
5: Thanks, Carol. Well, thank you, uh, Alan and Kate, for making this uncompromising film. Uh, The film premiered June 28th on PBS Independent Lens and is available through July 11th on the PBS streaming app. The film is The People versus Agent Orange, directed and produced by Alan Adelson and Kate Daverna, featuring the activism of our guests Carol Van Strum and Trantonia. Your courage is breathtaking. I can't tell you enough how grateful I am for, to you for making the film. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Thank Miller. You, Jack.
0: And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express